You're listening to the Complete Concussion Management Podcast with Dr. Cameron Marshall. Ask Concussion Doc is a show where we answer your questions about concussions, treatment, and rehabilitation to help practitioners better manage these injuries. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Ask Concussion Doc, episode number 110. Today's episode is all about dysregulation of the autonomic nervous system, uh, sometimes called dysautonomia. So what we're going to talk about today, this is obviously a very common and interesting topic in the world of concussion. This is one of the uh, one of the five top uh, issues for concussion patients and one of the five top causes for post-concussion syndrome. Uh, So we're going to talk about today what is the autonomic nervous system, what happens during a concussion and how is it affected during concussion injury, uh, what types of symptoms might you be experiencing that might kind of lead you to believe or lead you to down the path of thinking that there could be an autonomic nervous system issue, Uh, and then excuse me, what type of treatments uh, are the most effective for patients with autonomic nervous system issues. First off, what is the autonomic nervous system? Well, the autonomic nervous system is actually uh, a two-part system. You have what's called the sympathetic system, and then you have the parasympathetic system. The sympathetic system is known as the fight or flight system, fight, flight, or freeze. It is the system that gets your adrenaline pumping, that opens up the blood vessels, that gets blood to your muscles in case you have to you know, fight. Let's say there's a bear chasing you, either you're going to fight, you are going to run away, or the freeze is where you just become so paralyzed that you can't really do anything. So things that the sympathetic nervous system does, obviously increases heart rate, dilates pupils to allow more light in so that you can uh, see better and react better to things. Uh, it dilates your blood vessels, releases adrenaline, gets you ready to act or not act if you're in the freeze category. Parasympathetic system is also known as the rest and digest system. This is what allows you to relax. It lowers your heart rate. It kind of constricts the blood vessels around your uh, muscles. It, um, it allows us to move blood to our internal organs. It allows us to stimulate our digestive system so that we can digest food. So this is the system that's activated when we're kind of calm and relaxed, at least it's supposed to. Now these two sides of the system, you can think about this like a teeter-totter. When one system is active, the other system is inactivated. So they kind of work in this balance, okay? So generally, um, when one is active, the other is inactive. So if you think about parasympathetic, sympathetic, when when the sympathetic system goes up, the heart rate rises, but the parasympathetic is down, which lowers the heart rate. So you get a rise in heart rate in the reverse the opposite happens. Parasympathetic stimulates digestion. Sympathetic system shuts off digestion. All right, so that's how the two systems work in balance. And there's a variety of things that they do throughout the body. So it's important for these systems to work like a teeter-totter. And if you have an overload of one over the other one, you end up with this imbalance, which is called dysautonomia or autonomic nervous system dysfunction. Obviously, there's varying degrees of this in post-concussion patients. Um, Dysautonomia is caused by a variety of different things. It's not just concussion injuries, right? It can be connective tissue disorders. Uh, it can be alcoholism. It can be um, um, a whole bunch of different you know, factors that can cause it, diabetes, um, autoimmune diseases, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
So I'm going to talk about concussion and how the autonomic nervous system affects patients following concussion. So after concussion, what we typically see is what's called a sympathetic dominance. So the sympathetic system takes over, the parasympathetic goes down, right? So let's think about this. And for my concussion patients out there, you're obviously going to uh, feel, you know, very much like this is you uh, for the most part. So what's going to happen? Well, we are going to have high heart rate. We are going to have activation of our adrenal glands. We're going to feel, you know, potentially sweating, potentially increased body temperature, pot potentially increased mental confusion. Um, all of the things that happen from a sympathetic standpoint, you may have dilation of the pupils. We see this often uh, after concussion injury, and that will allow more light in. This may be the result of light sensitivity. So if you think about the sympathetic system, this obviously makes sense for concussion patients. This is going to be the things that they all always, you know, kind of feel, right? So when your adrenaline system, your sympathetic system is going crazy, what else, you know, suffers? Well, digestion tends to suffer. So patients will often feel bloated, have maybe increased food sensitivities to things that they've never had before. Difficulty sleeping, falling asleep, staying asleep, all of these things because of this imbalance, right? So I'm sure this sounds very familiar to all of our concussion patients. Essentially, your nervous system is in a constant state of fight or flight. Everything is perceived as a threat. So even when there's minimal things happening, like a loud noise or bright lights or something like that, in a crowd, everything is on edge and everything can kind of tip you over the edge. And that is the challenge, okay? For most people after concussion, this is actually fairly short lived. And I'm just going to give you an example. One way that we typically measure autonomic nervous system dysfunction is through exertional testing. If somebody has high sympathetic dominance, they are generally exercise intolerant. They can't do exercise. Uh, their heart rate doesn't allow to go up. They're not able to accommodate blood flow properly. Their heart rate, uh, their heart rate variability is off. All of these factors weigh in on whether somebody will be exercise intolerant. So one of the tests that's been done for this is the Buffalo concussion treadmill test. And we We've seen in the literature that the treadmill test for the most part is normal in patients that are fully recovered after about a month. So the treadmill test generally, if you test somebody on the treadmill within the first two weeks, if that treadmill test is normal, there's a good chance that they're going to be recovered fully symptomatically after a month. If that treadmill test is abnormal, they tend to be the people that still have symptoms after a month. So there's a bit of a correlation here with whether or not they pass or fail the treadmill test, which might lead us to down the path of realizing that dysautonomia or autonomic nervous system dysfunction is one of the main drivers or a major driver of persistent concussion symptoms. We just ran a study with our data, with complete concussion management data, and we found the exact same thing. Those patients that failed their first treadmill test took on average two weeks longer to recover than those who passed their treadmill test within the first two weeks of recovery. So you can see here, two weeks longer might not seem like a lot, but if you keep in mind that complete concussion management clinics are actually engaging patients in active rehab and treating these patients, uh, that ends up being quite a bit because on average, less than 5% of our patients go on to have persistent symptoms. So if you think about delaying that two weeks, you're putting patients into that category. So it's super, super, super important that um, that patients are treated if they do fail the Buffalo treadmill test, but in a lot of cases they don't. If we just left them to their own devices, a failure of the Buffalo treadmill test is correlated with who is likely to have more prolonged recovery in the future. Now, you, like I said, you can mitigate this with doing active rehab, which is how we've approached it, uh, but you still have a two-week 
longer recovery if, for those that fail. So this shows that dysfunction in the autonomic nervous system could be a driver of persistent symptoms. So if you are already in, a, in the chronic phase, uh, some things that you could be dealing with. I just kind of wrote some stuff down here. So trouble with exercise, I've already alluded to, right? This could be you get dizzy when you exercise. This could be you have increased headaches. You have uh, your temperature gets out of control, right? Sometimes patients will have this huge flush and they won't, they'll just be too hot to do anything. That is indication that there could be some autonomic dysfunction there. You could have GI issues, right? Because what does the sympathetic system do? it shuts down your digestive system. It doesn't allow you to do that process. So like I said, increased uh, bloating, constipation, or diarrhea, it can go either way. You could have a mixture, it could be up and down. Uh, bloating, stomach pain, nauseousness. Uh, you could develop food sensitivities, as I mentioned already, that weren't ever there before. All of a sudden, somebody may just become intolerant to dairy or intolerant to gluten or some other things. This is indication that potentially your digestive system is shut down and that could be because in part due to the autonomic nervous system. Okay, so that's something to keep in mind. Lightheadedness, right? If we think about how the autonomic nervous system controls blood flow. So typically when I talk about PCS, I talk about the five main causes and one of the five main causes I usually lump into a category I call blood flow. But the reason the blood flow impairment is there is because of the dysfunction of the autonomic nervous system. So blood flow is just an easier thing for people to understand. But generally, this isn't like necessarily just cerebral blood flow. This is full systemic blood flow, which is controlled by the autonomic nervous system. The, your, your heart rate variability, which is how your heart rate fluctuates beat to beat to be able to correspond to the demands that are placed on, on your system. Uh, another thing called neurovascular coupling, which is how blood flow is shunted around the brain to go to the areas that need it, right? This allows us to, to keep our brain active. If you have a dysautonomia and, you're and that is system is affected, you're not gonna be able to shunt blood around to the right spot. So if you are doing a cognitive or physical task and you're not able to get blood to where it's needed, you're going to become symptomatic. You're going to have issues in trying to do that. So translation, when you're not getting sufficient blood flow to the brain, you feel lightheaded. The reason why we faint, right? If you stand up too quickly and you feel like, whoa, I'm going to faint. And if you do faint, the reason why we faint is because our blood, our brain is not getting enough oxygen. So it's a, actually a safety mechanism because if we go down, what happens is the blood then just allows gravity, just allows enough blood oxygen to get to our brains to kind of regain consciousness. So it's almost like an inbound safety mechanism if you're not getting enough blood to the brain. So oftentimes if we stand up, it takes our heart rate a few seconds to kick up. It takes our blood vessels a, a few seconds to be able to constrict to drive blood back to our brain. In certain patients with dysautonomia, that mechanism is impaired. So when you stand up, your blood vessels don't constrict in your lower legs to drive blood up to your brain. They stay dilated or potentially sometimes in certain conditions like POTS, they may even dilate further, which then results in increased dizziness and your heart rate kicks up to try and you know counteract that, but you're not, it's the other mechanisms are not filling in the gaps. And so you're not able to sustain that. So you may feel lightheaded, faint, headaches, dizziness, visual disturbances, uh, sensation of, uh, you know, passing out. And that is because of this. Okay. So if that is you, and sometimes that's in response to exercise, sometimes that's just in response to, you know, sitting upright, right? Which that tells you that there's something a little bit more significant. Okay. Uh, tension. 
muscle tension, right? The tension in our muscles is it, we require blood flow to keep them relaxed. You know, all of the stress and anxieties that go along with the sympathetic drive keeps things tense and tight. We can't allow those muscles to relax and let go. So if you've been getting soft tissue work or manual therapies and it's not been going well and it's been kind of aggravating things and not really getting to the root cause, it could be because the autonomic nervous system is so out of whack that all we're doing is just kind of flaring things up and we're not actually getting there. So that's why concussion care needs to be more comprehensive. A lot of patients will think, well, I just need to go see a massage therapist. Well, no, because massage therapy won't work unless you've taken care of the entire, you know, other picture, which is the autonomic nervous system, stress reduction, diet, gut health, digestion. All of these things are so important before you go and do the other piece, right? And I think that's what a lot of patients aren't grasping. Um, I talked about it a couple of weeks ago where we have this concussion recovery pyramid that we have in our concussion fix program. And the first two rungs of that pyramid are the most effective and the most important, but most people skip them. They go to the top level, which is just the rehab, right? They go in, oh, I have a problem with my eyes. I'm going to go work on my eyes. It won't work. You won't be able to get anywhere with your eyes if you haven't fixed the autonomic nervous system, if you haven't fixed the inflammation, if you haven't fixed all the other pieces that kind of go along with it, okay? So muscle tension could actually be not just muscle tension, but it could have something to do with the autonomic nervous system as well. Light and noise sensitivity. Remember, think about your nervous system is on, on high alert, okay? Highly activated nervous system. Loud sound, boom, like you're on high alert. Visual issues, crowds, movement, you everything is stressful, right? Your nervous system is perceiving everything as a threat. So all these sensitivities that you may have for light, sounds, and whatever else could be due to autonomic nervous system issues. Sleep. I mean, that one just makes sense. Uh, mood and even concentration issues. If you're, you know, kind of on edge, it's hard to kind of relax and focus, right? Like if you think about what you need to study, if you were trying to study for an exam while trying to outrun a bear, you wouldn't be retaining that information. You're so on autopilot, just doing whatever you can to get away from that bear that you're not actually, you know, thinking about, you know, other things. And so same thing goes with this. If you're in a conversation with somebody and your nervous system is perceiving everything around you as a massive threat, you're not gonna be able to focus on that con on that conversation. And so you're going to perceive this as I have some sort of cognitive impairment. And the actual thing may actually be just like an autonomic nervous system issue. If you could calm your nervous system down, you could potentially be able to focus better. So there's a lot of things that kind of go into this, right? It's a very multi-system thing. And the thing about concussion is it affects multi-system. So if, like I said, if you're going for that top rung of the pyramid and being like, well, I just need to work on my cognitive rehab and that's gonna be it, it's not gonna work. You're gonna have to fix everything else underneath of it in order for cognitive rehab to do anything for you, right? And that's where people are missing out. How is this diagnosed? Well, we have to think of this dysfunction on a bit of a spectrum, right? Like I said, it's a teeter-totter. Your teeter-totter could be like this, or your teeter-totter could be like this, okay? And what works for the teeter-totter like this doesn't work for the teeter-totter that's like this, all right? So it just it's all figuring out like kind of how severe it is. My initial thing with a concussion patient, if somebody comes in to see me after a few months, let's say, Okay. First thing I do, I'm going to do a neurological examination, just basic stuff. This has nothing to do with the autonomic nervous system. I'm just checking their overall neurological function. Then the next time I see them, right, the first visit is basically just to figure out, okay, what happened? Where are you at? What kind of symptoms are you experiencing? And um, 
you know, I'm going to rule out red flags. So I'm going to ask them, you know, anything that may warrant, okay, maybe this person needs a little bit more advanced, you know, care. Maybe they need to go get an MRI or something like that. Basically, this can be figured out by the history and a, and a basic neurological examination. If all of that is normal and there's no red flags or nothing to point me towards more severe injury or anything like that, the following time I see them, which is usually a day or two later, I'm going to put them on the treadmill. I'm going to do a buffalo concussion treadmill test. So I'm going to put a heart rate monitor on them. I'm going to check their heart rate in a resting state. So I know what their heart rate is while seated. Sometimes I'll get them to lie down. And then once they're in a resting state, I'm doing all my initial notes. And then I stand them up and we walk to the treadmill. All right. And I do a treadmill test. So if we have a subtle dysfunction, the treadmill test will pick it up. The person will be exercise intolerant. They'll get on the treadmill. They'll start working. And all of a sudden, yeah, I'm starting to feel dizzy. Okay, stop the test. And then what I do is I look at what their heart rate was when they had that increase in symptoms, okay? And generally, keep in mind, these people already have symptoms. They come in feeling dizzy and headache and everything. I do the treadmill test and I'm looking for an increase in that, right? Do you get more dizzy? Do you get more of a headache? Anything, okay? So now I put them on the treadmill, we start doing our thing. They say, oh yeah, my dizziness is increased substantially. Okay, good. What is your heart rate at this point in time, right? That now is their threshold. And then we take a percentage of that threshold and we have them exercise every single day at that sub-symptom threshold level. Okay, so that's the treatment and the diagnosis for subtle forms of this kind of dysautonomia. There's more to it than that, but that's kind of the mainstay, okay? So many studies have shown that these dysfunctions in heart rate variability, neurovascular coupling, uh, which is measured on fMRI in a lot of ways, um, and also um, some of the other like blood flow issues like cerebral autoregulation and things like that have been found in people that are exercise intolerant through Doppler scanning and fMRI, like I said. And so the treatment for that is exercise. There's a ton of evidence on this. So it's one of the easiest ways to kind of counteract this in those kind of slightly teeter-totterish off people. Um, so do, 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 where's my, where am I at here? Sometimes if I get them up to go to the treadmill, their heart rate, I won't even get them to the treadmill. Their heart rate will spike way up. They'll be, you know, oh, like dizzy. Okay. I just like sweating and the whole deal that will lead me down. Okay. This person needs to be checked for POTS, which is postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome and that is what I was talking about where these people have such a dysautonomia that when they stand up their blood vessels instead of constricting in their lower limbs and it can be different there can be neurogenic and vascular um, but let's think about it this way just for for simplicity blood vessels don't constrict to force blood to the head the blood vessels instead dilate and blood pools so when blood pools their heart rate now goes okay this person's gonna pass out I need to pump more blood to the head to try and keep them, you know, conscious and then the heart rate picks up, but it's not, you know, it's not doing enough work. So they get this massive increase in heart rate and they're dizzy and they're faint and they're sweating and all of these things. So then that leads me down the, the, the path of POTS where there's some screening tests that can be done, but ultimately I'm going to have to send this person for a tilt table test to see. And a tilt table test is where they strap you in, they monitor your blood pressure and your heart rate and all these other things and they, and they tilt the table upwards and they monitor you for like 10 minutes and they you know, they see if you go unconscious, they see what your heart rate does, all these things. So that's the standard kind of gold standard approach to this. So that is more of this teeter-totter, right? So if I get them on the treadmill and they fail, I go, okay, there's likely some dysautonomia going on here. 
If I get them on the treadmill and they pass, well, they're probably in decent balance, right? If I can't even get them to the treadmill, all right, we have to start somewhere else. I'm not going to start with necessarily exercise for them. I'm going to make sure I'm going to rule out POTS and some other orthostatic issues. I'm going to then take them through that protocol. I've talked about POTS in other episodes, so if you're interested, you can go find that you know somewhere somewhere else. Okay, so just like the diagnosis for you know kind of these these cases is exercise in a way the treatment for this is also exercise so just a disclaimer i'm going to go through some treatment protocols for this and things that you can do this is not medical advice this should be done under the care of a professional um, and so i'm not your healthcare provider and i'm not encouraging you to do this on, without supervision but okay so exercise when it's done in the right way is probably one of the most effective things for this. Even if it is a POTS, right? Even if you do have this dysfunction, we still get people to exercise, but we get them to start in a recumbent fashion. So they actually start with like, let's say rowing or a recumbent bike where they're, they're able to kind of be, you know, kind of more downward and not necessarily fully upright because being upright is what causes this blood pooling to happen and they're not getting enough blood. But exercise actually helps your blood vessels. Do you know what another thing that causes dysautonomia I listed a bunch at the start. One thing that causes dysautonomia is excessive inactivity. Okay? What do we tell concussion patients in a lot of times? Rest. Do nothing. Okay? Like just lie down. Bed rest in some cases. That will cause your autonomic nervous system and the way it controls your blood vessels to become inhibited. It will affect your autonomic nervous system and you won't be able to respond. So that is a cause of dysautonomia. This is why I have such a hate on for people telling patients to rest. No, you should be doing activity. You should be moving. You should be doing light physical activity within the first couple days after your injury. The evidence shows that this gets people better faster. And this is probably why. You're not allowing people to sink into this dysautonomia type of phase. Sometimes you have no, no control over it, but I think we could probably prevent a lot of these by doing this right, okay? So we put you on the treadmill. We figure out what your threshold is. Then we give you a sub-symptom threshold exercise protocol, 80 to 90% of whatever your threshold heart rate was. And we have the exercise at that rate every single day, okay, for a week or two. And then we bring you back in and then we see how you do on the treadmill test again. Are you able to pass? If so, okay, good. Just keep exercising. If you're not able to pass, we give you a new heart rate and we slowly, gradually work you up until you can fully pass. So exercise is one of the mainstays for helping to affect your autonomic nervous system balance, okay? Breathing exercises. So this is for all levels of dysfunction, but oftentimes if it's way up here, you may have to start with breathing exercises. If, if you wanna think about the balance of the autonomic nervous system, the, in order to decrease sympathetic, the way that you do that, because it's on a teeter-totter, you have to increase parasympathetic. By increasing parasympathetic, we can deactivate sympathetic, right? So if we have this high sympathetic overdrive, things that we can, we have to think of things we can do to activate the parasympathetic system. Exercise is that if it's done in the right way. Too much exercise, going too hard, can have a more stimulatory effect. So you have to do this in a sub-symptom threshold way, at least to start. You can ramp up as you get better at it, as you get in better shape, but to start, you wanna stick with that sub-symptom threshold. The other thing, like I was just saying, is breathing exercises. So your diaphragm is, is highly connected to the parasympathetic system, okay? Deep breathing exercises, gradual slow breathing exercises activates a nerve called the vagus nerve, which is, connected to, which is the main parasympathetic nerve, 
Okay, so activating things, doing things that activate the diaphragm in a controlled way can uh, increase your parasympathetic tone, which then decreases parasympathetic, okay? There's been research done using biofeedback, where they'll hook you up to a machine, and you can actually see your real-time heart rate variability based on your breathing rate. And through this research, you can control your heart rate variability, and you can actually do training to improve your heart rate variability by doing breathing exercises. And even if you didn't want to go through a biofeedback thing, the breathing rates that they found in these studies was anywhere between four and a half breaths per minute to six and a half breaths per minute to maximize parasympathetic tone. So if you think about time yourself for a minute and breathe slowly, deeply, full diaphragmatic breaths, okay? Breathe in and then exhale slowly and then breathe in and exhale slowly. If you get your breathing rate down to four and a half to six and a half breaths per minute and you do that for a few minutes, let's say you start with three minutes and gradually work yourself up to 15 to 20 minutes, that will have tremendous impact on your vagus nerve and tremendous impact on your parasympathetic system, which will then improve your sleep, improve all the other things that go along with increased parasympathetic activity like digestion. Um, there's another uh, technique called Wim Hof. If anyone knows of, of Wim Hof technique, that's more of like a, a deep diaphragmatic breathing, kind of more of a hyperventilation type technique, um, but that can be effective. I actually do that every single morning, um, and I've noticed that my parasympathetic activity, even just on my heart rate variability, has been, has been improving by doing that. Chanting, singing, laughing, right? Activating the diaphragm and all the good mood things. Gargling. So there's another nerve called the recurrent laryngeal nerve that goes into your vocal cords. And by gargling, you're activating diaphragm and recurrent laryngeal. So gargling with water or you know mouthwash even for, for a period of time is very stimulatory to the parasympathetic system, okay? Next up is cold showers or intermittent cold exposure has a high parasympathetic output. So again, getting back to Wim Hof, if anyone wants to Google Wim Hof, it's W-I-M uh, space, last name is H-O-F, Wim Hof. Um, he's this, you know, crazy superhuman person that um, teaches these breathing techniques and this cold water exposure. And... Um, yeah, it's, uh, there's, there's some pretty good science around it as well, but this is something that, that I've been kind of playing with as well, but there's something to this in terms of parasympathetic uh, activity. And then finally is calming activities. So things, if you think about parasympathetic being, you know, your activation, parasympathetic being the calming, doing things that can calm your nervous system like meditation, mindfulness, even talk therapy, things that are relaxation, walking in nature, grounding, right? Grounding is where you take your shoes off and you put your feet directly on, you know, grass or soil because you're getting the ions from the earth and it naturally increases your parasympathetic tone. Walking in nature, being in nature, all of these things have this kind of reviving uh, aspect to them because they activate your parasympathetic nervous system and they lower your sympathetic nervous system, which is your stress response, right? So if you think about doing these things, okay, so I'm going to go through them again. Exercise in a sub-symptom threshold way increases parasympathetic tone. Breathing exercises or anything that activates the diaphragm, so deep breathing, four and a half to six and a half breaths per minute. You can also try something called the Wim Hof. Um, chanting, singing, uh, laughing, gargling, cold showers, um, and calm, anything that, that, that has, it creates a calming um, activity like meditation, mindfulness, prayer, uh, grounding, nature walks, okay? So it's not just about doing one element. So even if somebody's just like this 
And I've discovered, hey, this person probably has some sort of dysautonomic issue. They're complaining of digestive issues. They're not sleeping well at night. All of these things, they seem kind of strung out. Okay, and then they fail the treadmill test. Okay, maybe they're here. Maybe they're somewhere on this kind of spectrum. Either way, I'm going to go breathing exercises, you know, cold activity, meditation, mindfulness, relaxation techniques, and sub-symptom threshold exercise. Okay, I'm going to tackle all of that as part of it. If somebody's like way up, I'm going to go, okay, we need to check them for POTS. We need to have better, like a more robust dysautonomic screening, which I don't do. I send them away for that. But I'm also in the meantime going to say, let's start working on these particular areas, okay, to try and balance that out. So it's not about just doing one thing. It's about creating a routine where you do it every single day, right? A lot of patients say, well, I've tried that. But when you actually ask them, it's like, well, I, I did it like a couple times. That's not going to work, right? In order to do this, you have to really, you have to work at it, right? It's what you do every single day that matters, not what you've tried once or twice because it won't work once or twice, okay? It has to be every day. You know, it's like exercising twice and thinking that you're going to be in shape. It just, it's not how it works. Uh, if you are, so if you are exercise intolerant, having hot flashes, digestive issues, muscle tension, lightheadedness, you could have dysregulation in your autonomic nervous system. Working with your complete concussion management healthcare provider, or if you can't find a CCMI clinic, if you check out our online program called the Concussion Fix, you can go to concussiondoc.io and check out the Concussion Fix program. We have a, a full protocol in there to teach you how to kind of do this along with all the other things, how to eat, sleep, uh, and all the other things that go into concussion recovery to build that foundational pyramid. Um, so I think it can start making a huge dent in your recovery if you feel that you've kind of plateaued or aren't getting the help you need. So this is probably one of the most overlooked and underappreciated areas. Most medical professionals, healthcare professionals don't have good understanding of how the autonomic nervous system works and how they can actually affect it and how it's affected in concussion. So it's so overlooked and a lot of people don't even realize that this might be the underlying issue um, of, of the thing. So uh, we look at it as a foundational element. We tackle this as a first order of business and unless you do that, um, nothing else is really going to be effective for you. So that is it for episode 110. Thank you very much. If you're watching on YouTube, be sure to subscribe to the videos. If you are watching live, normally I hang around and answer some questions, but I actually have to go today uh, doing a research review soon, so I have to leave. But um, thank you guys for joining us, and we'll be back next week. Uh, the topic, I can't remember what it is off the top of my head, but thanks guys for joining. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Complete Concussion Management Podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe and let us know by leaving a review. Have questions about concussion management for future episodes? Submit them to our website, Facebook, or even Instagram. See you next time.